Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member Lev Finalum gives us a 10-minute primer on mezzanine financing and shares his career path. Learn about why he got into investment banking in the first place, what's the hardest part about running his own shop, as well as his one piece of advice to his younger self. Enjoy. Lev Finn alum, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. No, happy happy to do it and uh, look, look forward to seeing how I can help. So it'd be great if you could give everyone just a short bio. Yeah, so uh, over my career now has spanned, gosh, almost 25, 26 years. Uh, started off generically uh, out of undergrad in, in uh, investment banking uh, in, in New York. Uh, did that for through the two-year analyst program into you know an associate. Uh, left that firm to continue to still in the leveraged finance business on the buy side. Yeah, with a um, with a uh, a mezzanine slash uh, equity fund, mm-hmm. also based in New York, um, did that uh, for another few years. Deciding, gosh, I was living in New York, um, and reached the point where I thought, gosh, I I, I can continue down this path mm-hmm. and probably have a pretty good life. Uh, but decided at some point I needed to grow up. Uh, so I thought grad school was a great, a great way to do that and, and decided to move back towards uh, where I grew up, um, closer to, closer to, closer to Texas. Mm-hmm. So ended up at uh, grad school in Dallas and have continued um, a career at post MBA in, uh, in the deal finance world. Uh, first in, in um, uh, project finance, uh, funding and investing in power projects, mm-hmm. uh, then back into, then back into leverage finance uh, in some capacity as an advisor, then as a lender directly. Uh, okay. Finally, at a um, um, a boutique uh, operational um, turnaround um, specialist. Uh, I was based uh, mostly in Dallas. Uh, the firm itself was based. Elsewhere, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, after building a network here, decided uh, that I would want to continue to do what I did, but started my own firm uh, three years ago and have been doing uh, similar, although uh, maybe down market in terms of size, call it 2 to $7 million to be the top for companies based here in Texas mm-hmm. and in the surrounding states. So uh, career is tracked somewhat in the deal business, although a, a few stops along the way. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for that um, 
that summary there. So let's just start that, all the let's start. Boring summary. No, it's great. Let's start all the way back at uh, <laughs> undergrad. So you went to yeah. what I would call almost like a semi-targeted grade school, uh, graduating in the mid '90s. And tell me what it was like. Was there, you know, you, you ended up getting into a love fin group at a what would you call that a boutique middle market firm? Back then? Uh, it was it was it was a large uh, large bank. Large you know? bank. Okay. Um, so. Uh, can you I tell me about, yeah, can a, you tell me about like, how do you, how you got, I assume you had some internships, maybe you didn't, I don't know what it was like back then, but what, oh, what was it recruiting it. like? Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, my only internship throughout college mm-hmm. was I worked for, um, I worked for a few, a two, uh, brokers, um, okay. who, uh, you, you, traditional brokers, uh, wealth managers, I guess they're called now. Uh, and doing whatever it is that interns do, um, and not and, and and back in undergrad, I really had some idea of what the differences were among commercial banks and investment banks, and certainly on the investor side, what private equity and and um, uh, other alternative asset managers were. Didn't really understand um, the the nuances, certainly that that, that do exist. Uh, all, all I knew was, uh, my, my undergrad degree was in finance, uh, enjoyed the deal business at some level and, you know, how I, um, uh, got into the business really was, uh, obviously there the big firms, the bulge brackets, uh, came onto campus to recruit, I dropped my resume, had a good interview with a firm and, um, uh, six weeks, four weeks later had an offer and, um, uh, that's that's what started the whole journey. And ter- yeah, I know it, it was a while ago, but did you have did you prep a certain way? What would, anything surprising? Anything? Any funny interview stories from back then? Did you flame out on anything, or did you just crush every interview that came your way? Or or do you, or not, I did, yeah. or do you actually remember anything about like the number of resume drops you put in and, and your like how many you actually converted to interviews? Do you, you remember? No, I. Um... Uh, I don't remember the exact number mm-hmm. of drops, but but yeah. I will say that uh, let's say I dropped ten, uh, the conversion rate to interviews was like nine. So oh, really it good. was it okay. was it, it, it was high, and I guess it's high or not. I don't know if that's high, but but and I think the reason is that um, because of the school I attended and because of the, the nature of uh, the firms that were recruiting at our um, at our school, there was a lot of alum. Yep. And I think that, that, um, a lot of decision makers were alums. And as a result, I think, um, all things being equal, uh, alums like to be surrounded by other alums, uh, <laughs> or at least they, the, the, the senior alums, the senior guys who are alums like to have their ego stroked by the junior guys who are alums. And so I think that that's perhaps one of the, one of the accidental, uh, benefits of, of, of being at the school I was and, and being recruited out of the, um, by the groups that we were. And so, so you make it, you uh, make it a luck, lucky or good. Yeah. So you make it up to New York, you're in this Levfin group, you're doing a lot of good transactions. You are there for a good four plus years, you know, getting promoted analyst to associate yes. with no MBA. Was that standard back then? Or what was the, was the thought process? Hey, I'm going to be a banker for life here. Or what was the thought process around that? I, I would, I would like to say that there was a big plan in place. And that, that was my, <laughs> That was my goal. It was really um, uh, not not really having um, 
a lot of people in my network or friends going through. We were all going through it at the same time. So none of us really had any visibility into what the life was going to be like uh, or the or the, or the path. I think some that, that's not entirely true. I think certain of my peers had a very good idea, had it all uh, mapped, mapped out, out to some degree and, 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 and had a, um, a plan to how to get there. I think mine was, was sort of um, uh, a less proactive than it probably could have been, but, but more reactive to different opportunities that uh, I had. And, and um, Do you think that was maybe uh, because you were working long hours or were the hours long? And, you know, is it something where you just kind of had your head down? Yes, I think, you know, as far as, as, as um, uh, work hours per week, uh, I think even today, you don't know what it's like, but it's probably pretty similar, crushing 80 to uh, 90 to 100 hour weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who, who, no one really knew what uh, time off meant and, and vacations were. Uh, actually, one thing I do remember is that um, when you are, uh, when, when you're able to schedule, say, a week, a week off people pre- people pretty much left you alone and and wow. and um uh so i think that people valued the the work time certainly but um people also uh recognize that gosh if we if we if we crush them too hard for too long without break um the 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 the, the, the use the usefulness uh, or how much contribution these these guys can make is just diminishing. So yeah, and we're I think that there that there, there that there was definitely um, an effort to make sure we had some um, uh, time away completely. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot more of that nowadays with um, the competition from tech. You see all the bulge brackets making a push towards improving the lifestyle for the analysts and the junior bankers with you know time yeah. off and all that stuff from set you know pencils down friday night to saturday morning or i think it's saturday or something like that or and then another other for other banks do you know at least one weekend off per month type of thing right. um so that's interesting so that even back then at, at least at this bank it was a little bit more as a first year analyst you were actually able to take a vacation a, a one week vacation or, two? Uh, or not i i i think it was after my first year, your first year. Let me get this. Yeah, I think it was after. I think it. You know, it, what I learned quickly um, is that um, the work calendar doesn't track the any traditional calendar at all. Mm-hmm. So even though it's, for example, the holidays, doesn't mean that people stop uh, right. or that I should stop or we should stop working. Uh, it tracks a deal calendar, which is uh, whatever stage your transaction or uh, pitch or whatever is in that's what you should be doing no matter if uh if it's um uh, a holiday or it's somebody's wedding or somebody's birthday doesn't matter sure uh, i think that 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 um you're, you're you're getting it done because that's the culture um it's a culture of of um of uh somewhat face time of course yep uh bad or bad or good but also um yeah the the teams uh, I'm sure this is true today. Are, are staffed so leanly, or you're spread so thin across so many uh, interesting and maybe less interesting uh, transactions that um, you're you're pretty leveraged. You're pretty maxed out at all times. Yeah. If you had any capacity, that 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 that's um, uh, almost viewed uh, uh, negatively uh, versus versus keeping yourself fully engaged. 
Yeah, the staffer would always try to make sure you had you were at full capacity, right? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so, question. So, for the people who are a little bit less familiar with uh, mezzanine, can you explain to them mm -hmm. like what what mezzanine capital markets is, or what uh, what are mezzanine investments, and how like the type of work you were doing? Just because I think people have sure, heard the sure. term, but not all, not everyone knows what it is. So, you know, my mezzanine uh, career tracks both the sell side and the buy side. So. On the sell side, um, it, it's what you might imagine uh, in, in terms of, you know, I was in a capital markets group. What does that mean? Uh, really, our role, uh, a little bit different from origination uh, in that it was our uh, responsibility to generate the relationships with the actual purchasers, the investors of the mezzanine debt uh, and equity uh, on occasion. Securities mm -hmm. that we were uh, that were being originated by our uh, coverage groups, right? And so, um, uh, not not to get too basic, but but uh, the way that we thought about uh, mezzanine, especially private, uh, were the the gap gap financing in lower middle market deals, such that uh, a mezzanine financing could be anywhere from at, at, in our group from five to seven million all the way up to 50 million. But basically filling a hole among um, private investors versus the bigger public institutional, or, or I should say uh, between the bigger um, institutional dollars that were buying um, leveraged loans and high yield bonds. So these were private, more, more privately negotiated bespoke mm -hmm. or, or one-off type, type uh, financing opportunities for those those type deals. And back then, did and so, most of them have like equity yeah. kickers and warrants attached to them? So if, if a certain valuation was hit, that they would convert to equity or they could convert to equity or a small percentage? So the, the answer to your question is we, we structure them as their debt securities mm -hmm. with equity uh, with equity kickers. So in other words, with equity um, warrants yep. uh, attached such that um, the, because if you think about a capital structure, um, there was some contractual return, but uh, but a, a lot of times these lenders were taking a hybrid of debt and equity risk. So they would they 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 would price in some of that equity risk uh, by taking a certain percentage of the company's uh, equity. Uh, oftentimes, anywhere from a point to uh, who knows five to ten percent. Um, rarely do we ever see it up at 10, but five right. is pretty average. Yeah. One to five is what I had seen, at least back in the day when I was interviewing for a meds fund that one way back in the day. Yeah. Um, but so exactly. I'm, I'm curious, um, the, the way I should think about this. So when people were structuring these debt securities with equity or warrants attached, those equity or warrants, was it typically something where it would convert no matter what, or only would convert at a specific valuation, like on a, on a financing event? How would, or just it converted after a certain amount of time? Like how how are they typically structured? Because I I would I I think myself and the listeners might actually learn something from understanding how those are structured. And if you know how they're structured today, has they have things changed on that at all? Do you know? So I think that it's been fairly consistent with. Mm -hmm. With, with with a with a warrant, so warrants are detachable. In other words, they are they can be detached from your bond mm -hmm. and traded independently. And really, what what is a what is a warrant for equity? It's really a long term call option on the equity of the company. Okay. And you, it's your right, not your obligation, to convert. 
mm-hmm. to uh, buy equity and, and have that um, uh, uh, if it goes public, obviously there's a market for your securities. Right. And you know you can structure warrants however however you want and 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 um, the way that ours typically were uh, one they were detachable two that they were cashless exercise. In other words, you didn't have to pay to exercise your 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 warrant. Um, they were pennies. Almost like more like restricted. So, almost like uh, more like restricted stock or something like that. Almost. Yeah. Almost. They were unregistered. Yep. Uh, but um, on a change of let's say there's a change of control, it's the easiest example. Company gets sold um, or acquired. Your warrants uh, immediately vest or convert. Uh, or you can redeem them uh, into yep. the amount of the equity that 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 the um, that stated on, on on the warrant, and so that makes sense. Um, and what about the underlying debt portion? Did the interest rate was it typically higher than a subordinated note, like an unsecured bond, or was it um, because it had the equity upside? Was it priced typically under that? Do you do you remember around? Was it like eight to fifteen percent? Yeah, these things were fairly fairly typical uh, structure would be an 11 to 13% cash coupon mm-hmm. uh, on, on the underlying debt, maybe one to three, one to 4% uh, pick P I K payment in kind. Yep. Uh, in other words, you just, you just get paid uh, in more, in more bonds. Uh, and, yep. and um, uh, at the time, no, well, not no, but um Say there was a one-year non-call period, then a uh, some sort of call schedule mm-hmm. uh, after a, either after a year or after however much time. Typically, on the buy side, we we structured at least two-year non-call uh, with some sort of make-hole provision in the meantime. If you really had to redeem these ahead of the call schedule, there was a mechanism for that. Uh, but but um, we we as investors. Uh, you want to know your your money is tied up for at least a minimum amount of time right. before it gets called back or redeemed or repaid. Because uh, if you're going through the effort to make the investment, uh, you want it working for you at least um, a couple of years or something. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, otherwise, the inve- reinvestment risk of having to redeploy that capital if it comes back too soon or it comes back quickly uh, to find another uh, opportunity. Uh, yeah. 18, 18 to twenty one percent return is very hard. difficult. Yeah. So let me, so you're saying that a mes lender could potentially get 11 to 13% cash coupon plus one to 3% pick payment in kind, meaning it's getting rolled back into mm-hmm. the balance of the, of the thing. So it's really almost like 15 to seven, 15 to 16%. Plus they could, right. plus they could actually have some warrants attached, detachable warrants on that piece of paper. So it's a pretty expensive, yes, exactly. it's pretty expensive financing for a company, correct? And it should be, what, it's, what kind of companies would do this? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't they just go get a bank, a secured bank loan? Maybe they don't have enough assets. But what are there? Is it typically because a bank will give them a loan, or what's the what's the situation here? Distressed. Um, so, so um, yes, it's it's a uh, it's an expensive quote unquote mm-hmm. uh, relative piece of paper compared to debt. It's always going to be cheaper than equity. Is what 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 the way to think about it is. Is that uh, if you're raising 20 million in financing, uh, and you know the 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 dilution from having to give up, say, a five percent warrant versus 
a $20 million equity uh, direct investment is, is significantly different. Right. Uh, but, you know, why, why, why are, um, why are companies raising um, mezzanine capital? Uh, a few reasons. Um, one is that there's an active market uh, of investors purchasing these kinds of, or investing in these kinds of securities mm-hmm. so that, that um, uh, there's um, uh, going to be uh, some, uh, liquidity uh, for that hole in the capital structure. Yep. Oftentimes, banks. Um, so the way that, that 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 we thought about the capital structure is, you get a certain amount of leverage through the traditional bank market, and uh, there's going to be, if it's a buyout, there's going to be an equity component uh, in that. But to fill out the capital structure, in other words. To get all the cash needed for an acquisition, you might need to fill it with uh, what's now or, or what can be is, is mezzanine debt. And, and, do, you, um, do you feel like that's becoming uh, more common are, because leverage is so high on these buyouts right now that where people are trying to write, you know, it, people are buying companies at 12 to 15 times EBITDA and it's, you know, they're getting eight turns yeah. of like senior <laughs> senior debt. Or is, is this something where it's becoming more common, do you, you think? Well, I think that that um, where it has become more common, lower middle market, is that um, the the middle market for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, what what what? How has the mezzanine market evolved? Uh, rather than it being strictly um, a basically a private high yield debt um, security, now what you're seeing are more creative senior financing, uh, second lien, uh, last out. Uh, senior financing to help fill uh, that um, to help fill that financing uh, potential financing gap, uh, but with more senior paper because you know a lot of CLOs, a lot of investors have um, uh, or credit funds have dedicated dollars or have uh, an entire strategy built around senior financing with with a little bit of yield. And how do you get that? It's in these other creative securities uh, or, or creative financings that uh, fill the same role as mezzanine, but maybe from a pricing standpoint are a little more competitive. In other words, yeah. you know, LIBOR plus 10, you know, LIBOR plus 9 uh, versus a straight 11 to 13% cash plus pick plus equity. Yeah. Um, you can still get your uh, $20 million uh, whole um, filled, filled yep. uh, but at a more cost competitive potentially. Okay. It uh, doesn't always, um, you know, it's still leverage. It's still debt. Yep. Uh, so uh, it, it, you're still maxing out the cap structure uh, to some extent. Okay. So that's fair. Sorry to take you on that little tangent. I'll get back to your career now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just, Great question. No, I no. think it's just interesting because there aren't a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of information out there on like the mez capital market. It's, it's a very kind of niche space. And I thought it would be interesting to just yeah. hear about it's it. Very, a it's a very subterranean world. Yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. So, okay. So back to your, back to your background. So you, you kind of get, get promoted analyst to associate. Was there at any point before then, were you thinking MBA? Were you thinking, you know, why, why kind of jump firms and did the MBA ever kind of cross your mind before you jumped firms? What was the thought process around that? Yeah. You know, so uh, getting promoted within the company, um, uh, was, was certainly the, the carrot that, that, uh, they offer internally as hey, uh, here's an opportunity. You work for an analyst as an analyst for three, two, three years. 
uh, if you do well, people want you to stick around. You can get promoted mm-hmm. uh, without your MBA. But, but you know, separate from how it might work internally at firms, uh, did the MBA ever come up? Oh, absolutely. It comes up. It's part of the, the, the analyst subculture dialogue of, gosh, do I go back to get my MBA? When do I do it? Where right. do I go? Uh, it, it's probably on your mind um, from the very day you start. Um, which is because, you know, these programs are two and three years. Um, let's say there's no uh, option for promotion. What do you do after two or three years? You know, the, the natural migration, if you want to stay in the industry or in the adjacent industry is the MBA. Right. So it's, and, and all your, all your senior colleagues, uh, the associates and, and on up to, to, to the MDs, um, you know, 90%, MBAs. at least yeah. the ones that I worked with all had their MBAs from top schools. So as far as, um, it being part of the discussion or thought process, absolutely. Because you, you're, you're surrounded by, I, I was surrounded some, by some of the smartest people I think I've ever worked with or been around, uh, and, um, all went to great schools, um, and thought, wow, I think that, uh, that's, that's probably my path too. And, and, and for not knowing anything else. So why jump um, to, why did you granted, go to another, think, why'd you go to another firm and, sorry, and just take a promote? You, you ended up not going to the NBA right away. You ended up becoming a VP at another mez mez for uh, doing, you know, mez type lending. Right. Um, uh, yes. So I went from associate to, uh, whatever the equivalent, um, I can't even remember the title. Assistant vice president. Uh, Assistant vice president. Assist, yeah, AVP, which is yep. which is probably probably the senior associate equivalent. Okay. Um, but but uh, you know why did I choose to do that? One, you know, in two thousand, whenever it was, uh, right before my firm got acquired by another firm, there there was a lot of turnover mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the firm, which is as I learned. Uh, early in my career, turnover and jumping around from different firms is, is it happens every day. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not something isolated. You know, it's part of the culture of, of, um, of investment banking. Certainly at the time was, was, um, uh, taking your, um, uh, taking your, your, either your group or yourself, uh, and, and doing it at another firm for maybe a, a, a lot more compensation, especially around guarantees. But why, why I did, um, you know, there was a uh, there was an opportunity to join a client of ours uh, who I really respected and, and um, uh, thought that uh, what a what a great way to learn a different side of the business uh, as an investor uh, versus as uh, versus on the sell side. So it was a, I don't want to say it was a natural extension of what I was doing, but it certainly made sense at the time. Um, well, you, it was basically uh, going to the it was going to the buy side, basically, right? So you went from sell side to buy side. Basically, going going to the buy side, exactly. Yeah, which is you know what a lot of people do nowadays. So it, it makes perfect sense. And you were there for a good number of years. You were there for three years before kind of deciding. Yes. The MBA was your thing. Um, you it does look like you had a little bit of a of an entrepreneurial stint there. Um, before yes. the MBA, um, you kind of um co-found a startup we don't have to say what it is because then it'll probably be obvious who you are but <laughs> um yeah the but point is like what what, what yeah. it really what it taught me was um uh while, while i thought that i had a pretty good background in the fin- in finance and in the deal world 
what I didn't have a great background in at all uh, was, well, how do you operate a business? Uh, how, how do you, uh, uh, what, what, how do you come up with a growth strategy, uh, marketing, all those mm-hmm. things that you kind of hear about and learn about uh, that other companies do. Uh, but when you're a practitioner, um, uh, an operator, and, and, and uh, certainly I had no background yep. in anything other than a, an Excel spreadsheet, uh, I thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe grad school is the way to learn these things and also enhance what I already know. And, and so it was, uh, I, I would say at the time, uh, granted, I was perhaps a standard deviation or two older than the average age. Uh, yeah. uh, of going back to grad school, but it made all the sense in the world to me if I wanted to continue to stay in, in the world um, in finance or in any role. Um, so going because so, of, so, of the things you learn or the networks you build, all those things. So going into your MBA, you kind of knew you wanted to stay in, in finance and you basically were going in there. Was there a thought of, hey, I'm going to go investment banking, I'm going to go back to sell side, or was it, hey, I definitely want to stay buy side? What was the thought process kind of going into your MBA? Like, did you know what you were going to recruit for right when you started? I know you were trying to get, well, it sounds like closer to home, closer to family. So you went to school yeah, um, yeah. down south. But if you could just tell me a little bit about like the, the thought process of kind of going into that program. Sure. Um, well, my stated thesis, at the time was, uh, as an entrepreneur, as I mentioned, I had no background really, uh, as a manager. Um, and I thought that I had, you know, decent enough, um, overall business judgment as, as I quickly learned, I had zero skills, uh, and, and anything other than if you needed someone to build an Excel spreadsheet, um, uh, with sources and uses and a debt cap table, I was probably pretty good at that, but that's about it. <laughs> and, okay. and, and, and so, um, really the, the, the idea was to, um, go into grad school and really get a background, a better one in those, uh, skills where I had no background, um, marketing strategy, management, and see if, um, if being an entrepreneur or business owner or, or, um, was going to make sense in the middle of my, it um, sounds like in the middle. Yeah. I was just going to say, it sounds like you kind of had your eye towards your own thing for a while, but then, you know, coming out of your MBA, you really kind of stayed in finance for a little longer. Is that, is that accurate? You did did another, like, let me see one, two, three, four, almost like five, six years, seven, no, eight years almost, um, before you kind of so, jump back um, to the startup scene. You know, the classic, uh, you know, what do you, um, you know, what, what do startups today do when they find out that their initial strategy is, might not be working? <laughs> they pivot. Right. So what, what did I do in grad school? I pivoted. Yeah. I pivoted, but it wasn't a pivot away from uh, being an entrepreneur or a business owner or senior manager at a, at a, at a more corporate firm, it was a pivot back towards a world I was already somewhat familiar with, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the world of, of, of finance. And so, um, but, uh, the, the difference might be that instead of, uh, re migrating myself back to the, back to the Northeast, back to New York, I would do it in the, um, near family uh, in the Southwest. 
your family. Uh, where, where I was, uh, where I was um, uh, back in grad school. So I think that 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 um, uh, that 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 certainly came true as I um, uh, finished out the program. But you know, I got some great advice uh, from an undergrad professor um, talking about an MBA who, who, who said, gosh, if you really want to get the most out of your MBA program, you can go back to the same school you did your undergrad and probably pretty do well, or go to a similar school that everybody else does, uh, who come out of finance or investment banking in New York, but try to, why not try to maximize your MBA experience by going someplace completely different, a different geography, a different network, uh, your classmates who come from different industries. And, and that way, you can take what you've already learned sort of on the job or, or pre-MBA career mm-hmm. and um, not only learn new skills, but also at the same time, get uh, more familiar with less familiar industries and, and less familiar geographies. Did you feel and like that, that was... that's what brought me back to uh, where I went to school. And do you think that was good advice long-term now looking back? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that... Um, uh, I think that there is, for me, that was the right, a right decision, mm-hmm. uh, only because I think that, that, uh, you know, living the New York city, uh, private equity investment banking lifestyle, it's, it's a great one. And, and one that persists for many people for many years and, uh, people do very well, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, but, but, but for me, uh, I thought that, um, uh, the, I think I missed uh, working in New York sometimes, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if I miss living there all the time. And so yeah. for me, the lifestyle choice of, of being in a different environment, doing the same thing, doing wall street on main street, if that's the most abused cliche in the world, <laughs> um, was an, op- was an opportunity to, to, to do that. And, and, um, certainly the trade-off, uh, are many, um, certainly lifestyle, certainly upside potentially, uh, and uh, all the the trappings of what makes New York such a wonderful city to to, to live and work in, uh, it, it it remains that way, and and um, you know I, I I can visit, uh, but uh, still get to come back to something uh, of a of a lifestyle choice, um, or, or way uh, or at least a, a completely different geography to come back to to live in, um, to grow a family in, for example. Yeah. And I think that that's that's sort of how the the the, the career is pan or career and choices have panned out to to um for sure to, to, to do what i enjoy but to do it in an environment that's more supportive of um of of uh of, of planting roots for long term for sure so you're you're coming out of your mba you kind of you know you're you're at you're at these kind of well-known firms for a year anywhere from a year and a half to or a year to two and a half years doing anything everything from um, you did even a, another stint in an independent strategic advisory firm, but you know some mm-hmm. some uh, as an investment associate at another firm. You know, sourcing, yep. evaluating, monitoring, private place debt. Um, so kind of similar to what you were doing pre MBA. Is that fair? Yes, um, that's fair. And then you kind of um, you moved out west. So tell me about that. Why you know did you have family in da- in in Dallas? And then what was the decision to move out west? So uh, the decision to move out to uh, to California really was 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 an opportunity to pursue and grow a uh, uh, an underwriting group that a uh, a large international 
uh, bank uh, was growing in the Western uh, U.S. So in other words, uh, they had an Eastern U.S. presence. But per- personally, um, like what was the was, underwriting? Were you were you married? So at the, were, you, think, were you married at the time? Like, so this personally, is, this is this this is the thing. This is this is sort of the funny part of it. Yeah. Which is, uh, got married in the early part of uh, November, uh, the year I started at the bank. Um, Ten days later, we were driving a U-Haul uh, <laughs> from after our like three days after our honeymoon ended. We were driving. Um, as a newly married couple from familiar to less familiar, but uh, more interesting geography and weather in Southern California. Yeah. So I think that that was, uh, we thought, we thought, you know, the thesis, to use that word again, <laughs> uh, starting off together as a young, um, starting off as a young couple, why not do it in a completely different environment? That way we are relying on each other. Uh, for, um, was, was her family uh, back in the uh, for the stability? Was her family as well back in the south, away from California? Uh, there was family, so all, all our networks and family and support were, was, was 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 here in Texas. Yeah, so and it's so tough. we were we were relocating to a place where uh, certainly we didn't have. I had my my sister at the time. Um, yeah, well. Obviously, still my sister. But my <laughs> sister at the time was was was, was living in uh, was living in L.A. So we had uh, a family member yeah. uh, who was who was going to be who was going to be out there. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, my sister has relocated back to where we are now, and so we cool. are uh, all back together again. Good, that's good to hear. It's tough. It's tough moving away from family, yeah. especially as once you start a family and everything. And um, yeah. I know my parents are out east and. Uh, Terry, my wife's family's kind of uh, Southern California. We're Northern California. It's tough. It's tough sometimes, especially with the yeah. young kids. But anyway, so you're you're taking this opportunity. It's a career opportunity. You move out west, away from family, and tell me kind of what. Let's get to the entrepreneurial stuff. So you ended up jumping to another firm um, in an MD capacity, doing kind of. It sounds like more going back to sell side. Is that accurate? Yes. So. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, what's unique about that firm was that it was very operational focused. Uh-huh. Uh, in other words, uh, yes, we did the more traditional things that the advisors do, M&A, uh, um, sell and buy side. Um, but we also did a heavy amount of restructuring work mm-hmm. um, and a, uh, an, an even probably heavier amount of distressed sale or um, credit, creditor and uh, creditor advisory um related to you know debt restructuring so i think that was that that was uh interesting in 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 all kinds of ways yeah one it was a entrepreneurial entrepreneurial firm started by a career entrepreneur uh, who happened to just be very successful in turning around businesses um as a board member and thought gosh i wonder if there's a way to to grow what I'm doing as a board member, but to build a business around it. And today uh, it's a premier, um, that business is, is, is a leader in um, boutique sort of um, advisory uh, around certainly restructuring, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, more generally in M&A uh, in, 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 in the four or five verticals that they're in. I think they are a, uh, they do really well. a, yeah. a, a, a leading firm in the lower middle market. And, and uh, so, it was really that model uh, and my experience there and my relationships with those principles there that gave me 
any confidence at all and inspiration to, to go out on my own. So tell me about that. How, I mean, you're starting your own boutique advisory firm for the lower middle market. Is that, is mm-hmm. that correct? But you're also, it's almost like a merchant bank model, right? Where you're, you're also providing potentially direct investments as well or helping source yes, that. Exactly. So is it from your so, own capital um, or is it from your, you're just, you have the connections to the investors and you, you provide that service for fee and, and stuff like that. Or are you actually taking ownership? Is, is your firm taking ownership in the, some, so we are. Um, so what, what we say we do, we do two things. One, we're an advisor, uh, and 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 specifically in exit sort of financing, mm-hmm. um, not exit, but uh, 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 exit of of uh, founders of businesses. And so you know, a, a lot of times, um, our typical clients is someone uh, reaching retirement uh, or a business is in, in a family or been in a family for a generation or two. And they don't want to uh, pass it on to their kids. They're, they're worried about passing it on to their kids so they want to liquidate. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just or, kidding. Or I'm there's just... no interest. Yeah, there's no, oh, fair. <laughs> either there's no confidence or there's no interest fair. Uh, among the next generation. And I think that they are asking themselves, uh, especially in the lower middle market, mm-hmm. um, Gosh, what what does it what 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 are my options? What are my strategic alternatives? Right. What does that even mean? Right. And so I think that uh, by and large, uh, we spend a lot of our time just in helping um, people, uh, helping illustrate what the anywhere from what the math looks like to what a process looks like, and helping them to prepare. If it's not imminent, you know, what can uh, a lot of questions we address are. Um, you know, what can we be doing in the business today if in two to three years or longer uh, I uh, want to, you know, sell my business or sell our business? And that's what we do. And, you know, I think that uh, uh, you know, where we are geographically, uh, a, a lot of businesses um, of that size in a, in a number of different kinds of industries. And so I think that um, it's a longer lead cycle. Because if you are obviously um, helping someone address some questions two years out from any sort of process, then then um, uh, it's a little bit longer than what you know your typical um, life cycle might look like. But right. but if you think about it, the way that we think about it, or I do, is if you're if you're trying to be someone's trusted advisor, you don't parachute in overnight and become someone's trusted advisor. You have to earn it. Uh, yeah, and you earn it by um, uh, one is referrals, uh, that counts a lot. Uh, but two is by showing and demonstrating and answering questions and being transparent, open and honest about, uh, what it is that they can expect in terms of anywhere from how long does it usually take? What does the process look like? What's the difference between, uh, this type of private equity firm versus a family office. So it's, it's a lot of just, um, Mm-hmm. Yes, somewhat educating the market, but but also uh, by being someone's um, uh, resource or answering questions that this is probably the first time they've ever faced them. So it sounds like uh, you have not, like but, you but, have uh, a but, but sometimes it is that you have a pretty solid network. It sounds like you know in in, um, in the south or in your area. So you've been able to kind of source those the referrals. There's so you're getting business that way. Is what's been the hardest part about going out on your own? Has it been just the the volatility? And I'm sure you know some months it's you know you you have a big fee, and then the next month you have zero. And is is it the volatility in earnings? Is it the is it the recruiting talent? Is it what's what's been the hardest thing about what 
what you've done kind of starting out on your own? The hardest, um, the hardest is the volatility. It's the feast, famine, yeah. um, uh, uh, downside protection of uh, trade-off. So what I mean by that is, yes, certainly when you're working for yourself, uh, the upside can be pretty uh, unkept, depending on just many things. But the downside is also uncapped because mm-hmm. uh, if, if you're running a business as a business, you're incurring whatever cost you are, and you may not make anything for that month, the next month, right. third month, or the fourth month. Um, and there has to be some comfort, uh, or not comfort, but you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, believing that you are doing it right, uh, or um, as we do, as I do, at the end of every year, at the beginning of a, the, the new year, which is to say, okay, do I still enjoy what I'm doing? Is it still generating enough positive uh, net uh, income to support uh, the family? Mm-hmm. And do I still get the quality time uh, in and around family such that that's why I'm doing it in the first place? Right. So I think that, that those, are, those are questions that I, I, I think I should ask everyone should ask themselves every, no matter what their career, but it's certainly as a, um, uh, uh, having, having, um, my own business is something that I'm more keenly aware of, which is all the ups and downs, uh, all the costs, uh, of, of managing, um, of of managing a, uh, an advisory slash investment uh, type firm. And, and, um, you know, to answer uh, one of your other questions, Mm-hmm. It's our capital that we invest, or that if it's if it's uh, the size um, or interesting enough, uh, we will certainly bring in um, uh, friends of uh, of the firm to help fill out financing. But but these are in uh, the difference is that the advisory business focuses on middle market companies. The investment business uh, is early stage businesses, early early stage companies. Fair. Um, uh, and so somewhat complementary of the advisory business, somewhat not. Mm-hmm. I would say it's complementary in that um, we continue to, uh, we, we just have a, are always in some sort of deal flow um, conversation, either as investors or as, as advisors. For sure. And so it keeps the network, keeps the network fresh and new and growing. That's great. Listen, before we wrap up, anything else you would kind of share with your younger self or the young listeners? piece of any yeah. wise <laughs> words of wisdom before we call it you know I, I i think that that um uh if i could advise my younger self or, or or at least um provide an overview for anyone considering the early stages of this this career which is you know don't let money be the guiding factor uh among the choices uh that you make early mm-hmm. uh i think that that what perhaps might be a better guide for earlier in your career is asking the question less, you know, where can I make the most money versus where can I learn the most? Where can I have the most responsibility at an early stage in my life or early stage in my career life uh, such that I will be learning by fire um, uh, versus, uh, versus uh, settling or, or not settling, depending how you look at it for the most compensation because you know, by the when you're in your your early twenties, mid twenties, everybody's sort of roughly around the same. 
it's when you get later on where uh, the differentiators happen in your earning capacity. But those are all determined by how much you've learned and how much uh, how much experience uh, you've been able to accumulate across different roles, different industries. Yeah, when um, people ask, I, I would add to that advice and say, don't just don't chase the the extra ten thousand dollars if it's not as good a learning experience, but also don't t- chase the name. Um, oftentimes people will be will yeah. be willing to take a middle office or back office position at a bulge bracket investment bank and turn down a solid middle market investment banking front office position, which blows my mind because you're going to be doing completely opposite work and it pigeonholes you, you know, it, or not opposite work, but yeah. completely irrelevant work at the middle office or back office, making it almost impossible for you to get to the front office where if you start in the front office um, or get there quickly, it's much easier to, to lateral firms. Um, within a year or two, so it is. You're, you're you're absolutely right. So it's really important it that is. you don't chase the prestige or the money early in your career. <laughs> the leverage is later because you're right. And mm-hmm. and when you are switching firms, the first things they're they're going to ask, especially front office, if you're is you know what what have you worked on and and what deals have you worked on? Did you work? And everybody knows what deals all the other firms are doing, and they'll ask you. Uh, well, I really wasn't on the front office part of right. a bulge bracket firm. Um, and then they'll quickly find out, well, you're probably not the greatest fit, uh, even though you're coming from a even bulgier bracket firm. <laughs> uh, but, but if you are coming from a just hyperactive deal environment right. at a lesser known firm, people are going to find out that, Oh, wow, you worked on that deal, that buyout, that IPO, right. that M and a, um, and you'll be able to speak to things you actually did as opposed to, uh, yes, my firm was involved in yeah, all as these opposed to leaning on the name. Um, yeah. deals, but you know, I was, um, messengering, uh, bank documents back and forth from the seventh floor to the 11th floor. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, it's a different experience and people, uh, are smart enough to answer, ask the right questions to figure out what you actually did. For sure. Well, listen. Lev Finn alum, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, your entrepreneurial schedule, um, to to educate Mm -hmm. us. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.